24-year-old Jalen Hinkle was faced with a choice. A defender of the North Carolina Courage soccer team, her career was skyrocketing. In June of 2017, she was invited to play for America in two international games. It was a dream come true and an incredible opportunity. Yet days before the event, it was announced that players on the American team were required to wear rainbow jerseys designed to honor the LGBTQ plus community for Pride Month. Jalen's biblical convictions on marriage and gender now clashed with her career, and she had to make a decision. Would she compromise her beliefs and wear the jersey, or pull herself off the team and compromise her career? A few years earlier, Jalen had whispered a prayer. During the spring season of her junior year in college, she began having excruciating pain in her left leg from an extensive blood clot. In order to save her life, a stent would have to be put in, but that would mean she'd never be able to play soccer again. The night before the surgery, she desperately told God, if you allow me to play soccer, this is going to be for you. The next day, her doctors discovered the blood clot was miraculously gone. Now, several years after God had answered her prayer and allowed her to play, Jalen had a choice to make. Would she place her commitment to God above her soccer career, as she'd promised? After three days of seeking the Lord, Jalen pulled herself off the team. She'd made her choice. She wouldn't back out now. She was slammed on social media and booed during games. She was called names by sports writers. When she tried out for the Women's World Cup, she was cut from the team, yet she remained faithful. As Sarah Barrett writes in telling Jalen's story, the measure of our obedience isn't found in the greatness of the act, but in how we stick to the Word of God for the sake of Christ. Every person has a different set of circumstances, but every person has the same choice to make, to be faithful to God regardless of the circumstances. Jalen viewed her decision to pull herself off the team as an opportunity to encourage believers to not waver on their convictions, but stand strong. Maybe this is why I was meant to play soccer, she said, just to show other believers to be obedient. My friends, if put in a similar situation as Jalen, what would you do? This is a generation, young and old, that seems to me to have either no biblical convictions or weakened convictions. That is why we're not making more of an impact in the world as we should. As we continue our sermon series, Voyager, looking at the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, as recorded in the book of Acts, we come now to Acts chapters 21 and 22. As we study these two chapters, we want to draw out four biblical principles for how to strengthen our biblical convictions for God's glory. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 21, starting from verse 1. When we last left the Apostle Paul, he and his traveling companions were on their way to Jerusalem. They had just met the Ephesian elders in the port of Miletus, where there they had a heartfelt, tearful goodbye. I read now verses 1 to 4. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, 
for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. The Bible tells us in these verses that Paul's traveling group made their way back to the Syrian port city of Tyre, where the ship had to unload cargo. While they waited for another ship, the group met some Christians in the city, and they encouraged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. These Christians in Tyre knew that Paul would be arrested in Jerusalem, so they cautioned him not to go. It may seem like Paul was going against the Holy Spirit's prompting through these disciples and their wise counsel. But if we read the preceding chapters, it is quite evident that Paul was not going against the Spirit's leading, but already knew of the hardships that awaited him in Jerusalem. And it is admirable that even knowing all of these things, Paul would still go straight ahead to Jerusalem as God had led him. Of course, it would be very natural for people who care for him to tell him not to go because they wanted Paul unhurt. But Paul would have told them that he was ready to suffer and that his conviction required him to accept all of the consequences. And we will see this interaction repeated again and again. In verses 5 to 9, we're told that Paul and his group made their way down to the port city of Caesarea Maritima, and there they stayed with Philip the Evangelist, one of the first seven deacons appointed along with Stephen. I read now verses 10 to 12. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. The Bible tells us, while they were staying with Philip, a prophet named Agabus, who had previously correctly prophesied about a famine in Acts chapter 11, came and illustrated vividly to Paul and those with him of what would happen to Paul in Jerusalem. Paul would be arrested by the Jews in Jerusalem who were against his ministry, and they would hand him over to the Roman authorities. This prophetic word from Agabus showed that Paul's arrest and the consequences of his impending imprisonment were all part of God's will to propagate the gospel message. Again, in verse 12, we're told that those who witness this prophecy tried to persuade Paul not to go to Jerusalem. They were not trying to undermine the will of God. This was a very natural reaction for those who truly cared for him. Now look at Paul's reply in verses 13 to 14. Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Paul knew full well what awaited him, and his conviction of God's will for him to go to Jerusalem did not waver, because he had long ago accepted the consequences of his biblical convictions. He didn't know what exactly would happen to him in Jerusalem, but he was ready for imprisonment and even to die for the Lord there. When they were unable to convince Paul not to go to Jerusalem, everyone submitted to God's will in this matter. From these verses, 
we can draw out our first principle to help us strengthen our convictions, and it is this, number one, accept the consequences of your biblical convictions. Accept the consequences of your biblical convictions. I put in the word biblical before convictions because we're not just talking about any personal convictions or preferences you may have, but we're talking about convictions that we get from living out scriptural truths. As someone clearly explains, a conviction is a strong persuasion or belief about the truth. Therefore, biblical convictions are the doctrines held to be right or true by the church throughout the centuries. Personal convictions are based upon scriptural truth and applied to an individual believer's life. Personal convictions provide boundaries for an individual to live a godly life. Biblical beliefs are things that can be demonstrated in Scripture, but are non-essential, providing room for differing theological positions. Personal preferences are things that relate to our convenience and comfort. So, my friends, we're not talking about your personal conviction about not eating beef as a vegan, or ampalaya or bitter gourd because you hate the taste, for example. We're talking about biblical convictions, truths taken directly from the Scriptures that form the foundation of our Christian faith and the basis of our salvation. You see, if we don't accept or are not ready to accept the consequences of our biblical convictions, then we will wilt when it gets tough and the challenges come. I'm reminded of Daniel and his three friends in the book of Daniel. His three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, would not bow down to the golden statue of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Look at their proclamation in Daniel chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Daniel chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and He will deliver us from your hand, O King. But if not, Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. These three men proclaimed that the Almighty God can miraculously save them from the fiery furnace. But if God's will is that they die in the furnace, so let it be. They would still not bow down to the image. One can only make this declaration if they've already accepted the consequences of their convictions. Daniel himself was the same way. In Daniel chapter 6, we're told that when Daniel knew that a law had been passed, that no one could pray to God but only to King Darius of Persia, the first thing he did was pray with his windows open as he had been doing for decades. His strong conviction was such that even if he had to suffer the terrible consequences of being thrown into the lion's den and die in the mouth of a lion, he would stand firm and do as he had always done and pray only to the living God. Are there people like Paul, Daniel, and his three friends in our generation today? Are we followers of Christ who are willing to accept the consequences of our biblical convictions? We all say we have convictions, biblical convictions at that, convictions based on the Word of God. But we are so often thin-skinned and afraid that when people make fun of us, 
when they call us names like closed-minded, intolerant, uneducated, we wilt. When people shun us or don't give us business or promotion opportunities, we break our biblical convictions and run. We don't even face the threat of imprisonment or death, and still we will today. How much more when there is actual physical harm that is involved for standing up for the truth? A CF podcast entitled Teach Kids said this, If children grow up believing there's nothing worth dying for, they'll end up feeling like there's nothing worth living for. It's never too early to start acquiring strong convictions. A conviction is a firm belief. So we need to ask ourselves, what convictions do we have? More importantly, how deeply do they run? Do they run deeply enough that we're willing to die for them? And more relevantly, are we willing to make sacrifices to live for them? Can our children see just how important our convictions are to us? A characteristic of Generation Z is that they are very cause-oriented. They don't wish to live for the traditional materialistic dream. They wish to live for meaning and purpose. They are easily inspired to join big causes. Other people are sharing concerning issues with them and encouraging them to get on board with those causes. Are we offering our kids something meaningful to live for? Or are we letting others have greater influence with their convictions? Verses 15 to 17 tell us that Paul and his traveling group made their way to Jerusalem, where they were warmly received by the believers there. I read now verses 18 to 21. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. The Bible tells us Paul got an audience with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem where James, the half-brother of Jesus, was leading the elders group. Paul told them all about his third missionary journey and specifically about the great numbers of Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. The leadership praised the Lord for this wonderful report and also mentioned about the many Jewish converts who had come to faith in Jesus as their Messiah or Savior. Indeed, the Holy Spirit was working mightily all over the Roman world as both Jews and Gentiles came to know Christ, and the church was rapidly growing. However, the elders in Jerusalem told Paul that there was a rumor going around about him that they knew was untrue. They had heard that Paul was telling ethnic Jews who came to know Jesus that they should no longer practice circumcision and reject all Jewish customs. This rumor would make Paul someone hated by the Jewish community. Of course, Paul did not teach this. He only taught that these practices were not needed for one to be saved or for their sanctification. They could practice these things as part of their cultural heritage as long as it did not go against any biblical teachings. So they could still practice circumcision 
and not eat shellfish or pork as a matter of choice, and it would not affect their salvation or Christian standing. How would Paul counter this misinformation about what he supposedly taught? The elders had an idea. Look at verses 22 to 25. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. The elders' suggestion to Paul was that as a Jew by ethnicity, he could go with four Jewish believers who were headed to the temple to take part in a purification formality and give offerings that mark the end of their temporary vow as part of their Jewish cultural practice. There at the temple, Paul could also take part in this purification formality that was also customary for those coming from foreign lands and offer to pay for these four's offerings to show everyone that he was still an ethnic Jew who didn't reject all the Jewish customs and traditions, but only taught that Jewish customs and practices did not save. The suggestion was that Paul could do all of these things without compromising his conviction and prove that what the people were saying about him was wrong. In verse 26, we see that Paul did as the Jerusalem elders had suggested, because he too recognized that it didn't affect his biblical convictions. Paul, of anything, was not two-faced or a hypocrite in matters concerning the practice of Jewish customs and his Christian faith. Remember, he even once called out the Apostle Peter in Galatians chapter 2 for being duplicitous. And this is the second principle for how to strengthen our biblical convictions. Number two, be flexible on the non-essentials of your personal convictions. Be flexible on the non-essentials of your personal convictions. I think one of the problems of Christians with deeply held personal convictions is that they are so rigid and inflexible that it also borders on legalism, forgetting that we have freedom in Christ. They do not differentiate between biblical convictions and personal convictions and preferences, especially in the gray area matters where the Bible is not explicit about. So they may think that they have to fight constantly with the world about everything. For example, as a Christian who is ethnically Chinese, I choose to wear red or happy colors to celebratory events or birthday celebrations of those who are older than me in this country. Because while I don't believe that colors bring me or others good luck, as some believe, there's nothing in the Bible that says I cannot wear bright colors to celebratory events. So to not make myself an offense to the culture I'm trying to reach for Christ, I happily wear red to special occasions if the situation warrants it. 
I don't wear black to the event just to make a point and say to the host, I don't think colors of clothes affect anything, so I have the freedom in Christ to wear black to your happy occasion. Or tell them, if I die, I'm going to heaven so I can wear whatever color I want. Black doesn't mean death, and I'm not afraid of death because of Jesus. We can be sensitive to our culture and not compromise our biblical convictions, as Paul so clearly illustrates. There are some things we have to be flexible on if it is a non-essential to the Christian faith, a personal preference, or a matter that the Bible doesn't specifically address, and at the very least, to allow it in the lives of others if they don't have the same personal convictions that you might have on these non-essentials of the Christian faith without condemning them. Areas where this may play out would be in the areas of styles of worship, use of technology and media, use of the internet and social media, what Bible version you use, drinking, dancing, clothing, music, movies, and even politics. For example, you can have a very strong conviction against drinking because you had an abusive father who was an alcoholic or you were hit by a drunk driver. But remember, the Bible only teaches about being drunk as a sin. So if someone wants to responsibly enjoy a mug of beer or a glass of wine, then we should not condemn them. This issue is dealt with in further detail in Romans chapter 14, where it deals with the so-called stronger and weaker brother. So while our church, for example, has certain practices that may be considered more conservative or have a preference for a style of worship that tends to be more reflective and less energetic, we know that there are other churches and Christians who prefer a different style of worship, but we do not break fellowship with them or condemn them. Personally, it's hard for me to stand up and sing for 45 minutes. I prefer to sit, but those that prefer to do so are very much welcome because standing or sitting as we worship is not prescribed in the Bible. I hope you see my point. We don't have to fight so hard for every single conviction we may have in our personal convictions on the non-essentials of the Christian faith. We can be flexible, just like the Apostle Paul was in this matter. I read now verses 27 to 30. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. The Bible tells us when Paul went to the temple to do what he needed to do, he was recognized by some troublemaking Jews from Asia. Notice how they ratcheted up the false accusations. They cried out that Paul was someone who spoke badly of all Jewish people, forgetting that Paul himself was an ethnic Jew, and that he said terrible things about all Jewish customs and said horrible things about the holy sacred temple. In fact, 
They accused Paul of bringing Gentiles, non-Jews, into the place that Gentiles were not allowed to be in just because they saw him with one of his Gentile traveling companions walking around the city. You see, Gentiles were only allowed to be in the outer courtyard known as the court of Gentiles. To bring in Gentile into the inner courtyard was sacrilege and a defilement, the Jewish people believed, of the sacred temple according to their practices. So they dragged Paul out of the temple and were looking to kill him. The non-believing Jews hated him so much. Now look at me at verses 31 to 36. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Apparently, this great civil disturbance and unrest outside the temple walls caused the Roman authorities to take notice. You see, the Roman 10th Legion was stationed at the Antonia Fortress that sat next to the temple area. So when their commander, Claudius Lysias, heard about this disturbance, he took his soldiers to deal with it. They were able to take Paul into custody, and Claudius tried to sort out everything. But since he got conflicting reports, because everyone was shouting many things, they decided to bring Paul into the fortress of Antonia, but had to carry Paul because the crowd was so angry and frenetic. My friends, this is a picture of how the world treats Christians with biblical convictions. There will be false accusations and rhetoric, and the accusations are often terrible and unsubstantiated, even to the point of hysteria. For example, if you try to say that the rainbow is the original sign of God's everlasting and unconditional promise in this overly sensitive generation, many will say you are simply trying to minimize the struggles of the LGBTQ plus movement, and yet they've only adopted the rainbow as a symbol since 1978. But this is nothing new. It's been happening for centuries History tells us that Christians were accused of being incestuous, non-religious, anti-government, anti-culture, and even cannibals. And now the knock on Christians is that we hate certain people groups and that we are bigoted and intolerant. Honestly, sometimes our actions and insensitive words feed into this opinion the non-Christian world thinks about us. But it's hard to tell the world that we indeed love all people as Jesus Christ himself did, and that it's okay to have strong biblical convictions and still love all people. Just because I tell someone that they will go to hell if they don't believe in Jesus doesn't mean I don't love them. It is out of love that we tell them about the truth of salvation from eternal condemnation through Jesus Christ. But how can we respond to false accusations? Look what Paul does, starting in verse 37. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak to you? He replied, 
Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. The Bible tells us Paul asked to speak to the Roman commander who was clueless as to who Paul was. He thought Paul was an Egyptian rebel who led a group of 4,000 assassins. Paul clarified that he was a Jew from Tarsus and appealed to the commander to speak to the mob that had gathered against him. Paul found the perfect opportunity to defend himself with the protection of the Roman soldiers and not while he was being attacked outside the temple. Verse 40, So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God, as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. As Paul spoke to the crowd in their own language, they began to settle down, realizing he was also an ethnic Jew like them. Paul told them of how he was brought up as a straight religious Jew who was taught by the famed teacher Gamaliel. In fact, he was such a zealot for the ways of Judaism that he persecuted the Christians, imprisoning and killing them, all which could be confirmed by the Jewish leaders in the city of Jerusalem. In verses 6 to 21, Paul continued by sharing about his conversion on his way to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him and how the Lord worked in his life to provide a purpose and ministry call. Paul told of how he was called by Christ himself to bring the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to all, specifically to the Gentiles. That's why he did what he did. From this sequence of events, we can extrapolate another principle for how to stand firm for our convictions. Number three, be prepared to defend and clarify your biblical convictions. Be prepared to defend and clarify your biblical convictions. My friends, all too often, we have a set of beliefs, even based on the Bible, but we can't explain clearly, nor can we defend our convictions. If I were to ask you, what is, in your opinion, the greatest movie you've ever seen, or the best band in history, or the greatest basketball player in history, you would be able to tell me. But if you told me what your answer was, you must be able to defend your answer. If you tell me the GOAT is Michael Jordan over LeBron James, you better be able to give me some stats to prove your argument. Or if you tell me the greatest band is BTS or the Beatles, then you should be able to name me some of their songs and prove why you believe they are the greatest band. But why is it for spiritual things we're not prepared to defend and clarify like we see Paul doing? If you believe the Bible is the inerrant Word of God, then you should be able to defend this conviction with some facts. 
if you believe that Christ is the only way to salvation, then you better have a defense for this conviction. That's why it's not only important for you to know what you believe, but you should know why you believe what you believe. This generation, with so much access to information at the click of a mouse, has no excuse not to be able to defend and clearly clarify their biblical stance and convictions. We see this throughout church history, especially in the early church, where followers of Christ were able to ably defend their faith in Jesus. Why? Because many of them were going to die for what they believed in. And if you are prepared to die for your convictions, then you better be able to state the reason why. Society tells us that an unborn child is a lifeless clump of tissues with no humanity. Society tells us that human gender is whatever one believes or chooses to identify with. Society tells us that there is no absolute truth and that the Bible is just a work of human invention. Society tells us that God doesn't have universal laws that define how His creation is to live and operate. But if you believe God's views on these subject matters, will you hold to those biblical convictions regardless of the pressures of this world? We can do so if we have some facts for the position we hold. We can have strong convictions if we are prepared to defend and clarify our convictions. We need to know some scientific evidences for why life begins at conception. We need to know basic biology that teaches that there are only two sexes. We need to know documentary evidence of why the Bible is inerrant and can be trusted. Remember, sometimes the clarification isn't just a one-liner. The Bible says so. This generation requires that you and I go deeper in our explanation. We need to be able to clearly and confidently define our biblical convictions. I read now verses 22 to 24. And they listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then, as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. The Bible tells us the Jewish mob who had gathered reacted violently upon hearing that the Gentiles were on the same level as that of the Jews in the eyes of God, who desired all to be equally saved. This was racial ethnic tension mixed with paranoia, and the crowds called for the death of Paul. Because he spoke in Hebrew, Claudius Lysias, the commander, could not understand what had set off the agitated crowd. And so he commanded that Paul be brought into the Antonia fortress to be flogged and tortured to get the truth out from Paul. But look what happens in verses 25 to 29. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained the citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. 
The Bible tells us Paul used his knowledge of Roman law to ask a centurion who was binding him if it was lawful for a Roman citizen to be treated like that. This caused both the centurion and the commander, when he was told, to exercise now great caution and care in how they treated the Roman citizen Paul. You see, Paul's use of the law to protect himself shows that when we take a stand for our biblical convictions, we can and should avail of all remedies available under the law to protect our rights. And this is our fourth principle as it relates to standing up for our biblical convictions. Number four, make use of your rights under the law to protect yourself. Make use of your rights under the law to protect yourself. Our country currently gives us the freedom and protection to express our biblical convictions without persecution, so use it to our advantage as followers of Jesus Christ. While living in this country, the teachings of the Scriptures are protected under the law. Now, there are countries around the world that don't grant the same freedoms, but we are blessed to be protected. So while we have this blessing, it means we should not fear what others think of us and our biblical convictions because we are protected under the law. Of course, this should encourage us to engage the proper legislative and political process to ensure that our religious freedoms continue to be upheld. Now let me end with the story of Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John and ordained as the bishop of Smyrna. He was regarded as one of the three chief apostolic fathers, along with Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch. But it was his deep faith in Jesus and his unwavering biblical convictions that is most admirable. During a time of great Christian persecution, Roman authorities saw the senselessness of making this aged man a martyr. So when Polycarp was brought into the arena, the proconsul pleaded with him, Curse Christ, and I will release you. His reply, Eighty-six years I have served the Lord. He had never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The proconsul reached for an acceptable way out. Then do this, old man. Just swear by the emperor, and that will be sufficient. Polycarp's reply, If you imagine for a moment that I would do that, then I think you pretend that you don't know who I am. Hear it plainly, I am a Christian. Even with more entreaties, Polycarp stood firm. The proconsul threatened him with the wild beast. Polycarp's reply, Bring them forth. I would change my mind if it meant going from the worse to the better, but not to change from the right to the wrong. The proconsul's patience was gone. I will have you burned alive. His reply, you threaten fire that burns for an hour and is over, but the judgment on the ungodly is forever. The fire was prepared. Polycarp lifted his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I bless you that you have deemed me worthy of this day and hour, that I might take a portion of the martyrs in the cup of Christ. Among these may I today be welcomed before thy face as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. As the fire engulfed him, the believers noted that it smelled not so much like flesh burning as a loaf baking. He was finished off with a stab of a dagger. Where are the polycarps of the 21st century? 
May God raise a generation of men and women who will stand strong for their biblical convictions, remembering to, number one, accept the consequences of your biblical convictions. Number two, be flexible on the non-essentials of your personal convictions. Number three, be prepared to defend and clarify your biblical convictions. And number four, make use of your rights under the law to protect yourself. My friends, may God help us to stand strong for our biblical convictions in this generation for His glory and as a witness for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the challenge from Your Word. All too often, we wilt because even though we have biblical convictions, we have not resolved to stand by them. We are not grounded in our faith. We don't know the reasons for why we believe what we believe. Challenge us, Lord, so that we will be able to accept the consequences that come with standing firm and holding our ground for the biblical convictions that come from Your Word. Allow the Holy Spirit to give us courage and grace under fire and raise up a generation, Lord, of men and women who will be like Paul Daniel, Daniel's three friends, and Polycarp of Smyrna, who will serve as a living testimony, a great witness for your glory, because they have stood firm for their biblical convictions. Guide us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.